She was 51 to 1 when she upset champion Jaywalk last month. Can Jeltrin reproduce that magic in the Kentucky Oaks? Plus, I've heard enough about the whys and the wherefores of the Horse Racing Integrity Act. What is the chance that this bill gets passed? We'll talk to a keen congressional observer about that on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a head-bumping finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. We all enjoy a good David versus Goliath story, where an unheralded outsider takes out the regal, seemingly unbeatable superstar. We've seen it recently in Churchill Downs' marquee races. Mind that bird and Giacomo at 50-1 to 1 winning the Kentucky Derby. And to get to this year's Kentucky Oaks, an outsider named Jeltrin had to overcome last year's Eclipse Award-winning two-year-old filly, Jaywalk. Jaywalk fails to fire here as Jeltrin now offers the challenge to Cookie Dough. Cookie Dough digging. Jeltrin surging. Jeltrin's 50 to 1. Cookie Dough tries to hold her off. These two photo finish. It's a huge photo in the Devona Dale, but Jaywalk's not involved. Not only was the win a sort of rags-to-riches story for Jeltrin, but it was the first graded-stakes victory for her trainer, Alexis Delgado. Just under two years ago, in August of 2017, Delgado won his first race of any kind here in the United States after moving from his native Venezuela. Alexis Delgado joins us here on In the Gay to talk about Jeltrin, but since Mr. Delgado doesn't really speak English, we also have with us, as a translator, the man who recommended the filly to him, Andre Blanco. Mr. Blanco is a former rider and fellow Venezuelan. He now consigns horses at the Ocala sales. Welcome, gentlemen. Mr. Delgado, how did you feel when Jeltrin was coming down the lane in the Devona Dale? Uh, he was, he said it was like a feeling, like a dream. And uh, last school long because when he said uh, her feeling was coming, like trying to win the races, that was the moment, the moment when he started to scream, like uh, he can do it. But uh, in the moment, he could not believe it, that he was doing it. Now, she had run fourth in each of her two previous races at Gulfstream this year. What made the difference for her this time? His plan was work for that exactly state, uh, the, the one that he just won. Uh, the, the other races, he, 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 just, he was like trying to work. In, in those two races, he was trying training that silly to try to beat that, that state. And the silly, the silly was doing it under under exercise and everything and the silly respond the way that he wants oh so the first two races were really just preps for the devona dale is that what he's saying yeah yeah he was trying like in giving a like good shape at the silly because he was thinking 
the Siligara Lara class, and she might have the opportunity to win the the bonus stake. Yeah, that's what I said. Now, Mr. Dagata, you chose not to run Jeltrin in another race after the Devona Dale. She could have run in the Gulfstream Park Oaks or the Ashland Stakes at Keeneland, so she'll be going into the Kentucky Oaks with eight weeks of rest. What are your thoughts about that? He said that uh, when the Philly finished the race, he feel that the Philly give, give all his energy and like she need a big uh, rest, like a recovery of that strong race that she was fighting. And he decided, when he knew that Philly getting to the Kentucky he decided work for the Kentucky and give it the, all the time possible. That way he can like recover the Philly the most as he can. Now, obviously, you made the move here from Venezuela. You said, uh, Mr. Delgado, that you had fulfilled your goals there. What were those goals? He said that uh, the situation, the first, the first thing, is the situation of the country was like coming down. He had done over there, like he won the last day. He used to be good with babies over there. He won the international state, the Caribbean, in Panama, stuff like that. The, um, the biggest days, and he wants to try in the United States give, giving to himself the opportunity because he thought uh, that he can make it here with help. He was in the beginning, was he was so tough uh, because it's like he leaves everything over there, he come here without, without horses and few help. And the only people that giving the opportunity to train a horse was me, Andre Blanco, I giving like three horses, so he, he trained. And the other was Ivan Rodriguez helping too, to giving the first horses to train, and that's when he started to train in the United States. Now this question is for you then, Mr. Blanco. Did you have a relationship with him back in Venezuela? Yes, well, I used to ride in a different track. I used to ride in Valencia. That was a different track. Uh, the main track is Caracas, de la Rinconada. But we start to be like a friend here. When he gets here, I got like three horses, and, and I got few experience in that moment. I want to become in a trainer in that moment. But uh, I got the horses, but I don't have the... Um, ability to train them I didn't know nothing in that moment and he he like he shows in there and I see that we might need each other I got the horses and he can train and I can be the extra rider and that one when he start the first the first horse race two that the first horse that I given to him with me ran four but it was, it was running somebody else's name and when I put my horse under his name, he one horse that uh, finished four, the next race with him finished second. And one filly that race with me finished like eight, and I give it to him, the next race, the filly won. Yeah, and that was, and we he built a really good horse for me. That was my best horse, King Angelus. He won, he was racing a stake, a uh, great tree, 
and I, it was a hole that I bought for three thousand. And the sad, the sad history about this, and we went to Tampa to raise the horse, and, and the horse blow the tendon, and I sent the horse to Venezuela. After that, we keep like in touch. Uh, that's why I bought the, the uh, I got a friend who had the Philly Jerk Twin, right? And he said, Andre, I got a good Philly that I think worth the, uh, she worth, she's going to be a race horse. I said, okay, let me try it. And I went to the farm and I breathed the Philly. And I, when I jumped out of the Philly, I really quick, I called Alexi. Alexi, you have to find an owner for this Philly. This Philly can run. I got another another money right now for buy it, but if I got if I had the money in that moment, I can buy it. But I, I say find somebody else. This is a good feeling. And he bought the feeling to my friend because I I, I called him Alexi. I found a feeling here that really can run. Uh, find somebody who can buy it, buy her, and then he find the guy and he bought the feeling. Trainer Alexis Delgado joins us here on In the Gate. He'll send out Devona Dale winner Jeltrin in the Kentucky Oaks. And also joining us to help translate is Andre Blanco, the man who recommended Jeltrin to Mr. Delgado. So, Mr. Delgado, we were talking about your native Venezuela. Obviously, you left as the country started to go downhill. But before the most recent government crisis began with now the dueling administrations, if you will, of Nicolas Maduro and Juan Guaido, and now the World Bank projects that the Venezuelan economy will contract by 25% in 2019, which is staggering. How does the situation in Venezuela now affect your family? My family... Said, um, right, he got few families in Venezuela right now. Most families are two daughters and her son that are here in Miami with him, with wife. In Venezuela, he, he had the last one was her, um, his mom, and he sent them to Colombia because he's half Venezuela and half Colombia. And like he got like no family right now in Venezuela, just a lot of friends. And a lot of ex-client owners, but in Venezuela, that is really going to bad situation too. That's why he decided to come here and follow a dream to train here and get away of the bad situation who was approaching to to that, that moment when he came here. How worried are you about your friends and clients in Venezuela? He got a communication very often with them. He helped a little bit and much as he can with the little thing that he can help. But he got like his assistant kind of used to be working with him over there in their bad situation. The, the country is really bad. It's really bad. It's like a few people can be fine over there. Jeltrin in control off the turn, two and a half. Up on the outside of Till Valley, from between horses, redouble, then toward the rail forever, Marta. Now there's an eighth of a mile to go, and Jeltrin is still well clear. Jeltrin by four and a half. This was over at the opening quarter. They left Jeltrin alone, and she's kicking clear with authority. Jeltrin and Jaramillo easily. Have you allowed yourself to imagine what it would be like to win the Kentucky Oaks? Well, the, he's going to leave everything in the hands of God. He imagine every night if he wins, he don't know 
what to do when, ah, if he, when the race. But he just let go all the things that are going to happen. And he knows that. He's just going to enjoy the moment. Keep working hard. And he got his plan already made it for for the Philly. I'm going to be the exit rider, which is going to be galloping the Philly. And they can talk us in Kineland. If we win, it's going to be a, a, a dream come true. Well, we certainly wish you the best of luck. Buena suerte, Mr. Delgado. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, you've heard a lot about the Horse Racing Integrity Act that supposedly would create uniform medication rules across the country. We'll talk with someone who knows how Congress works and whether this will ever get done right after the break. Welcome back to In the Gate. You've probably heard quite a bit about the so-called Horse Racing Integrity Act that has been introduced into the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. The act would create an independent, non-governmental authority to set and enforce uniform rules for medicating racehorses across the country. Right now, the rules are set and enforced by each state that conducts racing. This would-be act is not that new, really. Congressman Andy Barr of Kentucky and Paul Tonko of New York first introduced the bill four years ago, and each year since, including this one. The bill has stalled in process each time. Okay, come on now. Those of you old enough to remember the legendary Schoolhouse Rock ditty, which I'd gladly sing for you, but I don't feel like sticking ESPN with a bill for licensing the music. I'm just a bill. I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. The difference between this year and the three prior ones, of course, is the uproar over the large number of equine fatalities at Santa Anita Racecourse during their current meet, although 23 of them came before mid-March. Very few have happened since. So here's what we want to do. The whys and the wherefores of this bill are fairly well known at this point, and we pretty much outlined it for you already. The question is, is this ever going to get done? Will the bill become a law? And who are the people and what is the process to make that happen? To help us figure this out, we welcome in a man who knows quite a bit about how things get done in Congress. He's Professor Paul Light of NYU, who's worked in a government studies capacity at the Brookings Institute and the Pew Charitable Trusts. He's also written 25 books on, among other things, federal government reform. And it is our honor and pleasure to welcome Professor Paul Light here to Win the Gate. So now that Representatives Barr and Tonko have once again introduced this bill into the House, it's officially called H.R. Bill 1754, the bill has to go to the Energy and Commerce Committee for markup. Well, look, um, this is a system that was designed not to work, okay? The founders built this system of checks and balances to prevent action unless you had a strong consensus for moving forward. Now, that that doesn't mean lots of stuff sneaks through or slips through on what we call freight trains, big omnibus bills that collect all sorts of stuff before they leave the station, often budget bills. But... The reality is is that it's hard to get much of anything done on Capitol Hill, and this one is going to be difficult on several 
levels. You don't just go directly to markup. I tried to figure out where this thing was in the process. Generally, it'll be referred down into a subcommittee. The subcommittee will work it, hold a hearing or two, try to build a legislative record that shows the support for the bill, the problems with the bill, et cetera, and et cetera. Then it's going to go up to the full committee, may or may not hold a hearing. There's a lot of variation in the process, but it's difficult to even get out of committee in the United States Congress. And then you got to go to the floor. And that right now is a long shot. You may have heard that Congress has gotten out of the habit of passing legislation over the last 10 years. The divisions are so deep, the anger so high that it's very difficult to get ordinary legislation through the process. So it's like a, a cliff diving contest as you compare one Congress with the next in terms of legislative productivity. The odds against passage are very long, and I don't see a vehicle for this, a horse, uh, that uh, this legislation can ride to passage. Then you're going to go to the Senate, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a long shot under the best of circumstances, and this one has some issues in the bill that may extend the process. Like what? Well, who's responsible for regulating horses and animals and uh, livestock and so forth? Is a horse a special animal that would lead the Ag Committee to say, oh, yeah, go ahead with that one? The Agriculture Committee is responsible for all regulation of feedlot animals, uh, not horses, not racehorses, but you've got interested parties on the ag side. I read the the bill. It looks like ag, the ag community is supportive, but you've got a lot of entrenched interests that you have to confront. So that's going to take some time to hash out. To put it mildly, this is an unusual regulatory system, a delegation of responsibility for oversight of the industry with a non-traditional uh, oversight body that has representatives from the industry, from the affected parties and so forth. It's an unusual bill in terms of its wrinkles and uh, procedures, right? Well, part of the issue, I think, also is that centuries-old back and forth between states' rights versus federal rights How much does that play into this situation? Well, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, this system doesn't work very well when it's working well. So there are (laughs) lots of ways you can derail a proposal. The more complex the proposal is, the more unusual it looks, the more likely it is to raise questions along the way. So I'm looking at this thing and I'm saying to myself, well, Why didn't they use a more traditional regulatory body? Why didn't they go to the Animal Plant Health and Inspection Service, for example? Or why didn't they go over to OSHA and the the regulatory bodies that take care of workplace safety, et cetera, et cetera? It's an unusual issue because it doesn't really fit into one particular agency, which is, and then you've got the state and the local regulatory uh, apparatus. So it's it's a complex system. And it's, it's designed for conflict. And then you bring along a bill that is very unusual to the uneducated eye. So I'm looking there and I'm saying, huh, so we're going to have a regulatory body that has 
interested parties and uh, hard science and authorities for an industry that people pay a lot of attention to. So this is complex is what I'm saying, and it's going to provoke or may provoke questions from interested parties who want that regulatory responsibility, and I don't know who they are. This is the kind of legislation that you try to drive through and and get into the uh, queue and push it through as part of a large volume of legislation. And uh, you're hoping that people won't take too close a look because it's complicated. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it is complicated, and it doesn't look like your your usual delegations of authority, so it's going to raise some questions, perhaps. So all of this kind of leads you to say, boy, the law, the odds against passage are pretty high to begin with, and this one may raise uh, enough questions that people say, ah, let's hold off on it. We've got deep polarization. We've got a president who's mad all the time, must have an opinion on this because he's got an opinion on pretty much everything. Um, <laughs> you know, he just issued his first veto of his presidency. He's not used to legislating. He's not used to controlling power on Capitol Hill. We're at stalemate right now. Congress can't pass much of anything. We just got through a long shutdown, the longest in modern history. So we're sitting here saying, okay, what are the odds of getting something done? And for this one, the main thing operating in its favor is that it's not going to draw much attention. It's too small to care much about. So if the Commerce Committee and and the co-authors can kind of push it through and attach it to something, they might be able to slip it through Congress. But somebody raises an objection to it and gets visible on that objection and it's gonna it's gonna just stall out and you know we'll see what happens in another two years so you're saying the best possible outcome would be or the best possible mechanism would be to attach this bill to something else absolutely i mean there are these big omnibus budget bills that pass theoretically we had the shutdown because nine of them hadn't passed, right? So the shutdown affected the agencies that didn't have appropriations bills signed and in operation, right? So you could attach it to some sort of an omnibus bill, let's say in late September. So we're going to have another budget battle and oftentimes you attach legislation uh, to budgets of one kind or another. This one doesn't fit within an department. My quick reading of it, it's not clear to me which department it's in who has ultimate oversight of this delegation to this uh, special body. So I'm not sure what you attach it to, but uh, this wouldn't be the first bill to be thrown onto a freight train uh, at the very end of the uh, budget year or at the end of the Congress. So we're going to, we've got a full two years here to work. And you can imagine that as, that as we get deep into the presidential campaign, that there'll be a couple of omnibus bills, uh, freight trains, as I've called them, that may be open for this kind of bill. And that's when you prepare it and yeah, put it on the freight train and hope nobody raises an objection and just run it through Congress. And that's how a lot of legislation 
gets done, not the big stuff, not the, the major reforms like immigration reform or whatever. This is a small, small bill, something that the authors would rather not fly on a flag above the Capitol. They just want to get it done, get the committee to approve of it, and slip it into a omnibus package. That's their best shot of passage. The more visible this thing gets, the more unlikely it will be to pass. And that sort of omnibus bill would be more likely to go through next year because it's an election year or this year because it's before an election year? Well, you got the, you got a couple of key points in a year, uh, in any given legislative year, where you can get some things done. You've got the appropriations and congressional budget process that theoretically comes to a close at the end of September. The the United States government fiscal year ends on September 30th. The new fiscal year begins on uh, October 1st. So there'll be a flurry of activity. Many of the bills will pass. Some of them won't. There, there's a lot of chaos in there. And, and it is the chaos in a given moment that creates the opportunity to get some uh, non-controversial bills uh, through Congress, people say, you know, they they rise on the floor of the House or the Senate, and they say, you know, uh, you know, I ask uh, unanimous consent to put this bill into this package, blah blah blah. And as long as it isn't controversial or doesn't raise a hackle, then you you've got a chance. The the thing that these uh, that this bill has to have is unanimity on the committee that there are no objections to it, there's no controversy on it, and maybe you can do it this way. The worst thing that can happen on the floor of the House, for example, would be for somebody to say to be ready for this, for there to be an activated opponent who gets somebody on the floor of the House to say, I raise, you know, I rise to object. Suddenly the thing is scotched. You, you know, you've got to have unanimous consent in the Senate to act. It's a hundred or nothing. And the House, any kind of objection is going to cause a halt. And suddenly this is not a non-controversial issue. You're, you're off to the races, no pun intended. So you get what I mean? I mean, yeah, this is the kind of thing that, you know, there's a, there's a path to passage it has to be non-controversial. It's got to be ready to go. It's not the kind of thing that you're going to go to the floor of the House and you're going to have a long debate, for goodness sakes. So if there's an objection to it, that scuttles the opportunity for passage as part of an omnibus package. We're chatting here on In the Gate with Paul Light, professor of public service at New York University and founding principal investigator of the Global Center for Public Service. Now, when it comes to what bills get put on these omnibus packages, what are we to make of the fact that this is the fourth straight year that this Horse Racing Integrity Act bill has been introduced by Representatives Barr and Tonko? Well, it's been a tough four years. I mean, as I said earlier on, you know, we are at or near stalemate on almost every issue from uh, good government to apple pie. I mean, it's very difficult to get much done because uh, the Dems and the Republicans are at odds with each other. The president doesn't have a focused agenda. He's got a lot of staff turnover. Uh, so legislative productivity, which was never very high, was designed to be difficult to get things done on Capitol Hill. That legislative pro- productivity 
has plummeted. It, it, you know, the, the amount of legislation that's going through the House and Senate right now is uh, at its low point over the last 30 years or so. And the question for uh, the Commerce Committee and the sponsors is, you know, how are you going to get this one on the calendar, get a rule to take it to the floor, a rule being a ticket, so you can uh, put this thing uh, in play, and how are you going to get it done? So I'd have to know more about the legislative history of why it didn't pass over the last four years. Did it ever come up for a vote? I'm guessing not. No. So that's the problem. You know, and then the issue is if it gets to the floor and if somebody raises an objection, it's dead. Is that going to be a problem? Um, is this a special concern for some group of Americans who want to use this kind of a bill to show their opposition to horse racing in general? You know, you, you get all sorts of things that pop up and it's hard to predict. I know this may sound naive, but how much do you think, small as this bill is, that these committee members are aware of the hand-wringing going on about the deaths at Santa Anita and elsewhere and the industry's growing call for this bill's passage? I don't really know it, my friend. I, I'm not uh, schooled on this particular bill or the Commerce Committee's activities on it, so I, I can't tell you. Right now, as you know, the House is beset with concerns about impeachment and uh, high value investigations of the Trump administration. You know, there are dozens and dozens of investigations ramping up. Commerce is going to have some of them. You've got the census issue right now before the Supreme Court. Commerce has got a lot of business right now, not as much as judiciary, not as much as government oversight, the big uh, investigatory committee. Uh, Commerce has got some room on its calendar to consider this, but You know, in the grand scheme of things where you've got House Democrats talking about whether and how to impeach the president, this particular bill just isn't going to shine. The the best advantage for this bill is to be on the down low, get ready to introduce it and pass it. Make sure you've got all your I's dotted and T's crossed and, and just have it in your pocket ready to throw down if an opportunity arises. That's my best guess. The Commerce Committee may have other ideas for doing this, but I'm I'm thinking that this is a long shot that can benefit from sort of an accident of history. Something opens up a couple of days of ordinary business, as it's sometimes called. Uh, We're going to see and take action on a number of bills before the Christmas recess, and this could be a present that they might want forward. There, There will be some legislation passing, but it'll be with little notice, and it'll be at the end of the session before members go home. We're we're getting ready for a brutal 2020 cycle. These members are going to be running hard. Uh, The Republicans are going to be running hard. And we we got uh, just a few moments of opportunity for it. So what would you say from a racing perspective? What would this be? Uh, You know, I I think it would be an, uh, an uber long shot. But uh, stranger things have happened. Mind that bird and Giacomo won the Kentucky Derby at odds of 50 to 1 <laughs> within the last 15 years. So you never know. But this is a very sobering yet very realistic look at something that racing people are hoping against hope becomes reality. Thank you so much for sharing this perspective with us, Professor Light. Very, very interesting. Okay. Good luck to you. All my best. 
our thanks to Paul Light, Alexis Delgado, and Andre Blanco. The battle over the fate of the Preakness got a lot more real when the Maryland Jockey Club had this to say, that 7,000 premium seats just past the finish line will not be used on the facilities one big day. It seems that part of the grandstand, the last that's original to Old Hilltop, cannot support the weight it's meant to hold. The MJC hired engineers to assess the grandstand's condition, a step that, euphemistically, I'd call bold. The MJC, of course, would like the Preakness run at Laurel, located between Charm City and D.C., but Baltimore City officials are prepared to dig in their heels to preserve tax revenue and history. I'm really torn. I understand the Baltimore point of view, but I also know that Pimlico is a dump. My guess is that Pimlico becomes new condos in five years, with Baltimore's cut getting the deal over the hump. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.